The Spaniards spent most of the day wandering around, looking like skeletons. They had given up on burying the dead, but the smell was making them regret it. Life over the last several weeks had been nothing short of miserable. Snakes, mosquitoes, storms, disease, starvation. At least one Spaniard was found dead every day. The island they now occupied was just off the western coast of what is now Colombia, barely north of the equator. These conquistadors had been promised riches beyond compare, native wives, lands to rule. Instead, they found only humid misery and a few natives adorned with gold and vibrant feathers who retreated into the island's interior after their arrival. The Spanish captain, 54-year-old Francisco Pizarro, believed this meant that a new world empire ripe for conquest was just around the next bend. Once reinforcements and supplies arrived, they could finally go about conquering it. But reinforcements for the expedition that were due weeks ago had yet to arrive, and Pizarro struggled to hold out hope. But one morning, once the shroud of fog lifted, a Spaniard spotted a ship on the horizon. With all the strength they could muster, the Spaniards ran out onto the beach toward salvation. Some fell to their knees and cried, while others made the sign of the cross. But as the longboats arrived from the ship, Pizarro realized something was amiss. The sailors that made landfall on the island told everyone to gather their belongings and whatever meager loot they had and to board the longboats. The governor of Panama had deemed the mission a failure and had ordered them to return. This was not reinforcements arriving. This was a rescue party. But that was not the agreement. Francisco Pizarro did not intend on being rescued. Pizarro looked to the mainland. His mission was not done. As his beleaguered conquistadors boarded the ship, Pizarro knew he had to do something. So he drew his sword. The gaunt Spaniards loading up the longboats looked up. Pizarro dug the point of the sword into the sand near his feet and then began walking towards the water. His sword cut a line as he went. He yelled towards his fellow conquistadors, then motioned to the line he had drawn on the beach. There lies Peru with his riches. Here, Panama and its poverty. Choose each man what becomes of a brave Castilian. For my part, I go south. He stepped over the line in the sand. The conquistadors talked amongst themselves, weighing their options. Most scoffed at Pizarro's audacity and continued to load up the ships. But a few couldn't let themselves leave, couldn't admit that the entire expedition had all been for nothing. One by one, men crossed the line to join Pizarro, who greeted each with a solemn nod. However, the vast majority of the exhausted would-be conquistadors went with the rescue party. Before they left, the group dropped off a few crates of supplies so that the men who stayed behind weren't completely doomed. In the end, only 13 men crossed that line Pizarro had drawn in the sand. Those who did would later be known as the famous 13, and most would go on to become some of the richest men in the empire. The ones who sailed back to Panama sailed off the pages of history. Pizarro looked to the loyal men who had chosen to stay, then to the mainland, he gave the orders to start building a boat. My name is Jake Barton. Welcome to Historium. This is episode 67, The Andean Gambit. Drums roared through the valley. 
Spectators in simple tunics lined the walled terraces to get a better view. On the stone road that carved through the valley, lines of hundreds of Inca warriors marched in perfect unison. They carried ceremonial copper axes, and their armor was adorned in feathers and beads. The procession stretched for miles, filled with regiments of the Imperial Inca army, slingers, spearmen, shield-bearers. After them came the dancers, performing their well-rehearsed ritual dances, honoring the bright sun overhead. Amongst the dancers sat Inca nobility, clad in bright clothes adorned with gemstones and pearls, carried by servants on long platforms called litters. These regional chiefs were followed by Inca standard bearers that flew the imperial battle flag. Emblazoned on the fabric was the symbol of the Inca Empire, two snakes devouring opposing sides of a rainbow. What followed was what every eager citizen had come to see. Surrounded by his personal retinue of elite Inca infantry sat the Sapa Inca, literal son of the sun. This deified god-emperor sat on a golden throne on an enormous litter carried by royal servants dressed in bright blue armor. A plume of rainbow feathers erupted from the throne. Sapa Inca wore countless pieces of the finest jewelry crafted by the best artisans in the empire. Behind him, the procession of thousands of slingers, dancers, and warriors continued for miles. Musicians blew on conch shell horns that could barely be heard over the roar of the crowd. Worshippers chanted praises that echoed through the river valley. Inca farmers cried out with joy as tears welled up in their eyes when they gazed upon the Sapa Inca himself. Some citizens collapsed to the ground from the enormity of it all. The Sapa Inca and his legions marched onward towards the imperial capital, the cloud city of Cuzco, nestled high in the Andes. The rumble of the screaming Inca populace viewing the victory procession shook the earth as it went. Francisco Pizarro was born in an arid landlocked province in Spain sometime in the 1470s. His birth was illegitimate. His father was a successful infantry colonel during Spain's campaign in Italy. His battlefield prowess earned him the nickname the Roman. His mother was a servant of low means. He grew up poor moving from place to place as the region was hit by droughts. Despite his last name, he was not granted an education of any sorts and found work herding pigs. As he grew older, his personality turned stoic and headstrong, as harsh and unsympathetic as the land he grew up in. As a late teenager, Pizarro joined the army, following in his father's footsteps. He participated in the final push of the Reconquista, which finally expelled the Muslim infidels from mainland Spain. The final Muslim stronghold of Granada was captured in 1492, the same year Columbus opened up Pandora's box in the west. In the military, Pizarro was always struck by the medieval tales of gallant knights defeating monsters told in the few books passed around by his fellow soldiers. In the mid-1500s, Christopher Columbus wrote a letter detailing his voyages, which was published soon thereafter. It became a runaway bestseller overnight, and Pizarro relished in the details of a virgin wilderness filled with wonders impossible for a poor Spaniard to even imagine. In 1504, Pizarro's second cousin, Hernán Cortés, set sail for the New World. Pizarro soon became enthralled with the possibility of joining him. The New World was an uncharted wilderness of wonders and terrors, and was perhaps his only chance of making a name for himself. 
Pizarro worked as a mercenary and a sailor for a few years until he had saved up enough money for a journey to Spain's new colonies in the Caribbean. He started off as a bodyguard for the governor of Hispaniola, but quickly he volunteered for dangerous expeditions and made a name for himself as a daring conquistador. On these early voyages, Pizarro fought and traded with dozens of native tribes in the Caribbean and Central America. He learned valuable lessons about diplomacy, navigation, and brutality, essential skills for any conquistador. Between these expeditions, Pizarro made a small fortune buying and selling slaves and running a plantation in the colonies. In 1514, Pizarro accompanied Vasco Nunez de Balboa on an expedition to find what some native tribes called the South Sea. They ventured across the Isthmus of Panama through jungles, marshes, and mountains until finally arriving at a beautiful blue expanse of water. Balboa walked onto the beach, firmly planted the flag of the Spanish crown into the sand, and proclaimed everything that the water touched now belonged to Spain. Little did Balboa know that he and the other Spaniards had, in fact, reached the largest body of water on the planet, the Pacific Ocean. He had just claimed Aboriginal Australia, the Kingdom of Siam, the Chinese Ming Dynasty, the islands of Japan, hundreds of coastal California tribes, and of course, the Inca Empire, all for Spain. While the scope of the claim was absurd, the discovery of an ocean on the other side of the continent was integral in Spanish colonization plans from there on out. Within a few years, a colony sprung up on the Pacific side of Central America called Panama. Panama was Pizarro's base of operations, and in the early days, he became well acquainted with almost everyone there. He acquired a large estate manned by dozens of slaves and extracted enough wealth from the land to live out the rest of his days in Panama, never having to work another day in his life. But Pizarro cared less about wealth and more for the power and status it provided. Pizarro reveled in exploring lands no European had ever laid eyes upon before, but really, he wanted power over land and people. As whisperings of sprawling cities of gold floated in through other Spaniards and native interpreters, Pizarro could not resist the life of a conquistador once again. Pizarro soon accompanied Balboa on another expedition, this time into the jungles of northern South America. After months of resistance from local tribes, the conquistadors finally captured some native chiefs. Despite days of torture, the war chiefs swore they knew nothing of a city of gold. Balboa ordered the entire tribe to be slaughtered. Then he, Pizarro, and their men trudged out of the mosquito-infested jungle empty-handed. Upon arriving back at the colony, clothes caked in sweat, mud, and blood, Pizarro overheard some mercenaries talking about news from Spain. Pizarro's cousin, Cortez, had just conquered the powerful Triple Alliance of the Aztecs to the north. Thoughts of this extreme wealth of this native empire and the mountains of gold acquired by his cousin Cortez filled Pizarro's head day and night. Native kingdoms, ripe for conquest, were simply waiting to be plundered. Pizarro's ambition for a conquest of his own kicked him into overdrive. He made alliances with other conquistador captains in the colony, wined and dined the wealthiest colonists, and offered future favors in exchange for supplies or mere loyalty. By the early 1520s, Pizarro had enough prestige, wealth, and sway in Panama to begin organizing an expedition of his own. He partnered with two men. The first was Diego de Almagro, a short, squat man who, like Pizarro, 
was an illiterate bastard from the Extremadura region. He had come to the New World because he was on the run, wanted for murder in the Spanish city of Toledo. An incredible organizer, he would be in charge of supplies, provisions, weapons, armor, and transportation. The other partner of Pizarro and Almagro was a Catholic friar and financier, Hernando de Luque. This ambitious priest would head up the financial side of things, as well as being in charge of recruiting missionaries and overseeing the religious aspect of the expedition. Pizarro and his two partners formed the Company of the Levant. As feudalism gave way to capitalism in Europe, more and more people with access to capital formed companies or corporations. These private business ventures were formally drawn up, usually with a notarized contract, and participants then became shareholders. This novel form of organization was slowly catching on in Europe, and it found a perfect home in the New World, where there was less competition and less regulation. While they used traditional military ranks and tactics, Pizarro's company was not officially Spanish military. Though they operated under the flag of Christianity, they were not officially under a Catholic mission. The Company of the Levant was essentially a group of heavily armed entrepreneurs. Anyone who joined would be granted a certain amount of shares that would give them access to a percentage of the plunder. If a Spaniard showed up with his own weapons and armor, he would be granted more shares. If he brought along his own horse, even more shares still. Pizarro, Almagro, and De Luque began the process of recruiting members and raising funds. Their pitch to the inhabitants of Panama included tall tales of vast cities of gold and beautiful virgin women. Finally, by late 1524, they had recruited 80 men and 40 horses. To say that the men they recruited were a motley crew would be an understatement. Most were escaped convicts, military deserters, or religious zealots. Despite meager rations and far fewer men than he had hoped, Pizarro set off to explore the western coast of South America. From the beginning, bad luck plagued nearly every part of the expedition. While at sea, harsh storms pounded their ships, and once on the mainland, the temperature and humidity rose to a sickly level. Besides the weather, the local tribes of the jungle fought ferociously using guerrilla tactics and subterfuge. Spaniards had to make the terrible choice between cooking in their metal armor or risk being peppered with poisoned darts flung by the natives. After a few months of trekking through the wet jungle, they engaged in a skirmish with a tribe. Diego de Almagro, Pizarro's second-in-command, was struck in the head with an arrow. With some quick thinking and medical expertise from one of the other conquistadors, de Almagro was very lucky to only lose an eye. Facing injuries and more brutal conditions, Pizarro was once again forced to return to Panama empty-handed. However, more and more adventurers, scoundrels, and missionaries were arriving in Panama every month. By 1526, the Company of the Levant had enough men and resources for yet another expedition. This time, Pizarro led 160 men with several dozen horses. This time, they sailed further south and landed in a river valley in modern-day Colombia. Finally, instead of self-sufficient tribes of mostly hunter-gatherers, the expedition encountered several larger towns and farming communities. Despite difficulties in translation, the people there spoke of an empire of the sun, high up in the mountains. Pizarro was thrilled, but other conquistadors had their doubts. Once the natives noticed the Spaniards' lust for precious metals, their stories began to include a lost city of gold just beyond the next bend. Some savvy Spaniards realized that these cities of precious metals were merely exaggerated tall tales, 
conjured to get the foreign invaders to move on. Some of the conquistadors believed Pizarro was being played for a fool. By this point, casualties from disease and lack of rations forced the now eyepatch-wearing Diego de Almagro to return to Panama to bring back more men and supplies. After more organized resistance from the locals, Pizarro ordered the party to return to the coast, where they could search for evidence of this golden empire of the sun from the safety of their ships. But both morale and supplies were running low. The men resorted to eating raw shellfish and berries collected from the mainland, half of which ended up being poisonous. But hunger drove them to roll the dice. After tossing yet another corpse overboard, they decided to land at a nearby island. They remained on this island for months, until Spanish ships arrived, not with more men, but with orders from the governor of Panama to return at once. What followed was Pizarro's famous line in the sand, the line in the sand that only 13 men crossed. Pizarro and his faithful then built a makeshift boat and continued their voyage south. They soon crossed the equator for the first time. For weeks, they crept along the Pacific coast, finding nothing. Until one sweltering hot day, they spotted something on the horizon to the south. A large white cloth. A sail. Pizarro's first thoughts were that another conquistador must have beaten him here. But as they got closer, they saw that this was no European vessel. What floated before them was a massive balsa wood raft, outfitted with a towering sail and a crew of over 20, all diligently going about their tasks of fishing and adjusting the rigging. The native sailors soon noticed the Spaniards' craft, and both sides slowly approached each other. Some of the Spaniards donned their armor. As the two crafts veered ever closer to one another, questions swirled in Pizarro's head. Who were these native sailors? Would they be friendly or hostile? Did they have gold? Were they a part of a city-state or a greater empire? The Spaniards were delighted to find out that not only were these natives friendly, but they were offering gifts to the emaciated Spaniards, many who were as gone to skeletons. Both sailing vessels connected, and the two sides met. The natives wore beautiful clothes, intricately embroidered with colorful images of animals and flowers. They provided the Spaniards with large clay jugs of clean water and dried llama meat, which, to the Spaniards, tasted something akin to lamb. Their leader was a tall man with drooping, elongated earlobes containing two large wooden plugs. He was also wearing all kinds of gold and silver jewelry. From another jug, this leader began pouring a different drink into various cups, calling it chicha. After a few drinks, the Spaniards gleefully realized it to be some sort of alcohol. Pizarro could not believe his luck. By this point, Francisco Pizarro, who had perfected the art of capturing, torturing, and killing natives, made sure to conceal his true motivations. He knew diplomacy was his best option. He offered up a few of their own supplies for an exchange. He traded a male and female pig, a few chickens and a rooster, and one iron axe. In return, the natives offered gold, fine linen cloth, and several jugs of water and chicha. Pizarro then asked to accompany the raft when it returned to the city where they were from. The kind chief accepted. As they made their way south, the chief examined every item the Spaniards had, all while tying various knots on several colorful strings. As they approached the city, the Spaniards nearly fell out of the boat in amazement. In front of them was a sprawling port city. Hundreds of rafts and sailing vessels skirted about the harbor. Enormous stone buildings and what looked to be some sort of temple rose stories above the rest of the city. 
As they got closer, the native leader did his best through rough hand gestures to reveal information about this place. Pizarro and his scribe listened intently as the rest of the Spaniards stared slack-jawed at the wondrous city before them. The chief indicated that the city's name was Tumbez and was part of a greater kingdom called the Inca. The capital was somewhere high in the mountains. Their leader had been Sapa Inca Hayana Capac, who apparently was some form of deity. The illiterate Spaniard did his best to understand. That king had just died, and there were several claimants to the throne. Pizarro nearly grinned. He could not have arrived at a more opportune time. By this point, they had reached one of the docks in the harbor. Pizarro ordered the Spaniards to remain in the boat with weapons at the ready. He ordered two men to enter the city and report back their findings. He chose a conquistador Alonso de Molina and a black slave. As they climbed onto the dock and were escorted into the city, they were the first European and African to ever set foot in the land known as Biru, which we now call Peru. The pair were greeted as instant celebrities. As they were paraded through the city, they were given gifts of colorful textiles, fruits such as pineapples and dragon fruit, and high-ranking nobles offered up their daughters as wives. Children marveled at the African's black skin and tugged at the Spaniard's shaggy beard. The pair of foreigners were elated. Just days before, there had been a real threat of starvation and a near-universal hopelessness. Now, they were experiencing all the wonders an unfamiliar civilization could offer. They were granted two native boys who would be taught Spanish to later be used as interpreters. They were then shown the temple where beautiful virgin priestesses watched over golden idols. The walls of the temple were lined with colossal silver and gold panels. From the temple, they could see a large Inca garrison, as well as dozens of large canals and aqueducts leading to and from the city. When they finally arrived back at the ship, escorting their new interpreters and each carrying a pile of gifts, they were so dumbfounded by their experience that they were completely silent. Bizarro, after much urging, finally caught them to speak of what they had seen. What they revealed seemed too good to be true. So he sent in a few more Spaniards to see if these two were telling the truth. When they too returned with piles of gifts, Pizarro knew that he had finally found what he had been looking for for decades. With only a rugged makeshift vessel and not nearly enough men, Pizarro knew he couldn't mount a conquest now, but he had all of the information he needed. Pizarro said farewell to the Inca chieftain and the Spaniards pushed off of the crowded dock. The land that Francisco Pizarro and his fellow conquistadors stumbled into was the northwestern section of the empire known as Tawan Tinsuyu, the Four United Quadrants. It stretched from the cloud forests of what we now call Colombia to the arid coast of what is now Chile. Many of the empire's inhabitants lived high in the Andes, the largest continental mountain range in the world, and the eastern edge of the Ring of Fire, the most volcanically active region on Earth. Unlike most empires, which tend to spread from east to west within a single climate zone, the Inca Empire stretched nearly 40 degrees of latitude from north to south. This range of latitudes and altitudes the empire enveloped included an extreme variety of environments, including fertile river valleys, arid deserts, humid mangrove swamps, freezing mountain plateaus, and dense jungles. The empire included some of the wettest rainforests on the planet, as well as sprawling coastal deserts that have never once recorded rainfall. Along the coast swirls the Humboldt Current, 
a flow of freezing Antarctic water. The temperature of the current lowers precipitation in the region, but provides abundant nutrients, which leads to a complex ecosystem teeming with seabirds, seals, salmon, and other marine life. Over the centuries, city-states in the region had battled for control of trade routes and resources in the Andes along the coast, with each in turn taking their place atop the pecking order. But none of these cultures rivaled the enormity of the Inca Empire. The Inca state had been around for centuries, but it wasn't until Pachacuti, whose name roughly translates to Earthshaker, that the Inca began to conquer surrounding territories. From the high mountain capital of Cuzco, Pachacuti reigned as an autocratic god-king called Sapa Inca. He was successful in conquering surrounding kingdoms and bringing them under Incan rule. Many city-states, upon seeing Inca storehouses overflowing with maize, sweet potatoes, and textiles, decided to bend the knee and willingly join this upstart empire. Pachacuti's son followed in his father's footsteps of conquest, so that by the end of his reign, the Inca Empire controlled nearly all of modern-day Peru. As each Inca god-king captured more territory, he altered the civic structure of society. The economy of the empire was centrally planned from the capital of Cuzco. The Sapa Inca would make rulings about political, religious, and social processes, and these orders would be implemented from above. The idea of private property was seemingly non-existent. Whatever was produced by the citizens belonged to the Inca Empire and would be divided up according to community need. Instead of taxes, each citizen was required to provide labor for imperial projects for a portion of each year. Men would often serve on construction teams, building roads or temples, serve in the military, on their expansionist campaigns, or fish along the coast. Women would care for the local children, weave in Inca workshops, or create pottery. While performing this work, all food, transportation, and housing were provided by the state. Newly married couples would be granted a house with a plot of land, including tools, seeds, and some livestock in order to support themselves. Additional land and provisions would be granted for each child the couple raised. All food not consumed by the family would be given to the community storehouses. Each plot of land was filled with a cornucopia of different crops, maize, pineapples, guava, beans, and several varieties of vegetable accompanied the multitude of potatoes and tubers. Through careful genetic selection, Inca farmers created hundreds of distinct varieties of sweet potatoes. Crop variance was far more important than crop yield. Some potatoes were resistant to cold, while others were resistant to drought, and others were resistant to blight. This strategy guaranteed that no matter what the environment threw at the crops, at least some would survive and ensured that the Inca storehouses remained full and famine was always kept at bay. To support the swelling population of the empire, the Inca had to expand farming beyond just the fertile river valleys that carved through the Andes. Through irrigation, intricate planning, and immense physical effort, the Inca created terrace farms that lined the steep mountains. This allowed the Inca to farm at altitudes and inclines deemed impossible by most other civilizations. Massive aqueducts funneled snowmelt into the rows upon rows of terrace farms that lined the river valleys. In addition to farming, the empire used their growing labor force for stoneworking, mining, construction, fishing, and diving for shellfish and pearls. These industries would provide raw materials that the Inca state would then transport to provinces or projects that needed them most. Amazingly, all of this organization was done without a written language. 
Instead, all communication was done through kipus, a band of multicolored knotted strings. The colors and knots and their corresponding locations each convey different meanings. Today, little is known about the specifics of what the kipu communicated, but it was instrumental in the lightning-fast communication the Inca enjoyed. Travel through the empire was done on roads created by the Inca laborers. Using the roads, in addition to tunnels and huge woven vine bridges, the Inca government connected every settlement and community into an intricate web. Along the roads were way stations manned by kipu runners. They were spaced apart the exact distance a runner could travel in a single day. This lightning-fast relay system of kipu transportation allowed news from any corner of the empire to be known to everyone else in the Inca hierarchy within just weeks. Another invention often deemed essential to civilizations was strangely absent from South America, the wheel. Because of the steep declines and inclines of the Andes, the wheel was not ever necessary as it was easier to carry things on llamas, alpacas, or on their own backs. Most Inca laborers had exceptionally strong legs from the inclines they dealt with every day. Slowly, the web of Inca roads, tunnels, and bridges connected every single city to one another, and under the Inca, trade prospered. People and their llamas laden with supplies exchanged goods across the empire. Pearls and dried fish flowed in from the coast, Gold, silver, and gemstones poured out of the mines in the mountains. Rainbow macaw feathers and coca leaves made their way west out of the Amazon basin. Instead of using brick and mortar, the Inca constructed their buildings with enormous stone slabs, intricately carved to create interlocking pieces. These blocks were designed to fit tight to one another, but still allow enough shifting to be resistant to a common occurrence in the Andes, earthquakes. Later explorers believed that the placement of these gargantuan stone blocks would have been impossible for humans and assumed that they had been placed there by giants. But with their abundance of labor, Inca building projects could literally move mountains with ease. Religiously, the Inca did what many other successful empires did. With each conquest of a city-state, the Inca would absorb the local gods into their pantheon of deities. However, all of these gods would always rank lower than the original patron deity of Cuzco, Inti, the mighty sun god. Temples worshipping Inti and glorifying the sun were built across the Inca Empire. Gold was often used in their construction and decoration. The Inca believed that gold was the sweat of the sun and that silver was the tears of the moon. The founder of Cuzco and the first Sapa Inca was Menco Capac, who is regarded as the literal son of the sun. Each Sapa Inca that followed was therefore a grandson of the sun and exerted complete and total authority over every single citizen in the empire. Strict formalities governed every part of the god emperor's routine. He would never walk in public, instead being carried around on a gilded throne on a litter carried by royal servants. Everything the Sapa Inca ever touched including utensils, plates, bedding, plucked hairs, and even collected feces, would be gathered up and ritually destroyed by fire each and every year. This was to ensure no lesser person could ever profane the Inca's possession with their touch. Since the Sapa Inca was regarded as immortal, no Inca ruler ever truly died in the eyes of their subjects. Instead, they would be mummified and treated as though they were still alive. They would continue to be carried around on their litter and reside in the same palace they lived in during their life. They would retain all of their possessions and all of their servants. 
Most Inca rulers would marry their sisters to ensure the purity of the bloodline. This sister wife was called a koya and had some power over religious ceremonies and domestic issues. However, in addition to this sister wife empress, the Sapa Inca could marry anyone else he wished. Sapa Incas had hundreds, sometimes thousands of wives and would sire a multitude of children. Despite the strict son of the sun imagery, there was no strict royal line of succession. The Sapa Inca would choose from all of his children who would be his next heir. The next Sapa Inca would not inherit the wealth of his father, since all of that wealth would continue to be owned by the mummy who was, for all intents and purposes, still alive in the eyes of the Inca. Because of this, each successive Sapa Inca would have to be somewhat self-made with conquests, projects, and funding for their lavish lifestyle to claim the throne. A crude political Darwinism took place during the passing of a Sapa Inca, with each son vying for his father's title. Intense palace politics and sons consolidating their power often resulted in conflict and sometimes full-fledged civil wars. However, this was seen as a good thing for most Inca citizens. As long as the fighting didn't get too out of hand, the resulting victor of the succession conflict would surely be the most capable ruler, and would then be formally granted the title of Sapa Inca, Son of the Sun. By the year 1520, the current Sapa Inca was Hayana Capac, who ruled over the current largest empire by landmass on Earth, with a population over 10 million strong. Sapa Inca Hayana Capac was in the middle of conquering several tribes in the rainforest at the northern border in modern-day Colombia. The fighting had been intense. These tribes were not part of an agricultural city-state and had no interest in joining an empire. Guerrilla fighting using ambushes and poison-tipped arrows stalled the conquest for years. But eventually, the Sapa Inca brought the bulk of the entire Inca military to the city of Quito, the regional capital of the empire's northern portion. With overwhelming brute force, Hayana Capac's troops advanced into the jungle. Their soldiers wielded spiked clubs, copper axes, slings, and short bows, and wore brilliant cloaks of feathers, gleaming silver breastplates, and carved wooden masks of snarling animals. Casualties were high, but the flood of well-organized Inca armies eventually overtook the northern tribes and secured the jungle as a new Inca province. For the next few years, Hayana Capac stayed in the city of Quito, content to oversee the settlement of Inca colonies from there. The Inca found that he preferred the mild weather in the equatorial highlands more than the harsh alpine climate of the imperial capital of Cusco. But soon, imperial scouts and envoys reported absolute chaos to the north. Epidemics of deadly disease spread like wildfire, and sightings of massive sailing vessels like floating cities were arriving from across the sea. By 1524, servants, courtiers, and other palace officials in Quito, one by one, fell ill. This strange disease, or combination of diseases, ravaged the city. No one was safe, including the Sapa Inca himself. Hayana Capac had an uncontrollable fever. He locked himself in the palace with only a few court officials. For weeks, his condition worsened. A fever-induced madness caused the Inca ruler to wander about his palace, continually screaming about the end of the world. In a fugue state, with splitting sores opening all over his body, Hayana Capac knew his time on this earth was limited, and knew he had to choose a successor. For his heir, he chose a very young son named Ninan Coyusi. 
This proved to be an ill-fated choice, as this young son came down with the same disease that had befell his father. Both father and son perished around the same time, and with their deaths, the Inca Empire was thrown into a state of chaos. Despite the political and pandemic-related problems plaguing their empire, several Inca nobles gathered and picked the man who was widely regarded as Hayana Kapak's second choice, Huascar, to be granted the title of the Son of the Sun. Huascar immediately summoned anyone with even the slightest claim on his title of Sapa Inca, brothers, cousins, half-brothers, to the palace in Cusco, where he had them executed. One by one, anyone with royal blood was arrested and killed. Only a few claimants were spared, including a fellow son of Hayana Capac, Atualpa. He barely escaped from the capital with his life, but managed to retreat to the northern capital of Quito, where the huge Inca army still resided, paralyzed by lack of orders. Huascar had more territory and solid control over the imperial capital, but Atualpa was clever, and he managed to persuade the Inca generals to side with him, which gave him command over thousands of the empire's most well-trained and battle-tested soldiers. With these key Inca generals siding with Atualpa, the stage was set for the worst possible outcome of a struggle for succession, a full-on civil war. The generals loyal to Atualpa proved to be a decisive factor in this civil war. With tactical precision, the Inca army descended down the Andes, some cities surrendered immediately, others went under siege before falling. Atahualpa had all the leaders who had chosen his brother Huascar publicly executed. All the while, both sides lost far more troops to disease than to battle. Amongst the chaos of this bloody civil war, Atahualpa received news from the coast. Sightings of a small group of pale men clad in silver. They rode atop strange beasts and had the ability to shoot lightning from sticks they carried. These foreign, hairy-faced people had just arrived at the port city of Tumbez. Pizarro drank from the lukewarm chicha beer, then sat the jug in his lap to admire the craftsmanship. Looking at the rest of the gifts obtained from the Inca, he couldn't help but smile, a crack of joy from his stoic demeanor. These gifts from a wealthy empire validated and justified every decision he had made to get here. Every raid, every injury, every lost conquistador had led him to this point. Surely, God had ordained this since creation. All he had to do was follow his path. The conquistadors with Pizarro, finally with full bellies, sailed north along the coast of South America. The Humboldt current sped them along as they made their way back to Panama. Pizarro kept his eyes glued to the horizon. He prayed he wouldn't see another Spanish ship heading south. All of his glory could be snatched away if a courageous conquistador decided to follow in Pizarro's footsteps. But they passed no other Spanish vessels on their way back to Panama. Pizarro decided that, upon reaching port, he would waste no time in organizing another expedition. They soon arrived at the Spanish colony in the jungle. The colonists in Panama were astonished that Pizarro had survived. He and the few others who had crossed the line in the sand had not been seen for over a year. Pizarro glared at some of the men who had neglected to cross that line with him, then quickly beelined to the governor's estate. However, the governor, Pedro de los Rios, was not in a welcoming mood. Despite Pizarro presenting the Inca gifts he received at Tumbez, the governor was unimpressed. 
he spent most of the meeting reprimanding Pizarro for wasting resources chasing stories. The two boys taken from Tumbez, who now each spoke a bit of Spanish, reported to the governor the immense wealth the Inca Empire contained. But even this did not sway the governor, who gave strict orders to Pizarro to not organize another expedition. The frustrated Pizarro left the governor's estate with nothing. He gathered those loyal to him and began planning their next move. Despite multiple attempts to persuade the governor over the next few weeks, the stubborn man refused to budge. The specifics of whatever vendetta or personal grievances the governor held towards Pizarro mattered not. Without his say-so, there could be no expedition. Gathering in secret, Pizarro and his men pitched ideas of how they could organize an expedition, but only one option made sense. The only way around the governor of Panama was to go over his head. They would make the voyage back to Spain, argue their case, and hopefully get permission and maybe even funding from the crown. Pizarro was a relative of Hernán Cortés, the conquistador and now governor of New Spain in Central America. That connection alone could grant him an audience with some representatives of the empire. The voyage to Spain and back would be a risk in and of itself. Countless vessels left port never to return due to storms, foreign navies, or pirates. This plan would also take considerable time, risking another conquistador swooping into the Andes before them. It was a long shot, but Pizarro's entire career as a conquistador had been full of long shots. So, Francisco Pizarro arranged a return voyage to Spain. He took his loyal companion Pedro de Candia, a tall Greek artilleryman, and the two young Inca translators. In addition, he would bring the gifts given to him at Tumbes as further evidence of a prosperous kingdom ripe for conquest. Pizarro's business partner, the one-eyed de Almagro, would stay behind as he was still wanted for murder in the Spanish capital. Before he left, Pizarro pressured all of the men who knew about this kingdom in the south to keep their lips sealed, lest they wanted dozens of other companies competing for the same prize. Their goal would be to obscure information about this wealthy kingdom and mislead any potential rival conquistadors of its whereabouts. Pizarro asked for patience and loyalty from his men, and assured them he would return as soon as he could, hopefully with a royal army at his back. Pizarro headed off from the Pacific side of the Isthmus of Panama to the Atlantic side. He then boarded a boat with Pedro, his native interpreters, and the Inca gifts, and began the journey across the Atlantic to a place he had not seen in 30 years, Spain. The conquistador and his allies arrived back in Europe in early summer of 1528. As Pizarro looked at the busy harbor, he found he was returning to a very different Spain than the one he had left more than 30 years ago. His native country was now an economic powerhouse, a fleet of treasure ships, including thousand-ton galleons lined with hundreds of cannons, loaded and unloaded their exotic cargo. The ports in Spain were now hubs in a sprawling colonial empire. Pizarro made requests for an official audience with the royal court through the proper channels, and then headed to the imperial capital of Toledo. Charles V had been a child when Pizarro left for the New World, but in the time since, this young monarch had amassed almost unimaginable power. His titles included King of Spain, King of Italy, Archduke of Austria, King of Germany, Lord of the Netherlands, and Holy Roman Emperor. With an empire so large to govern, he traveled almost nonstop, never declaring an official imperial capital 
in an attempt to not alienate any of his subjects. However, luckily for Pizarro, both the king and queen were currently residing in Toledo, so his appointment would not be with some imperial advisor, it would be with the monarchs themselves. But Pizarro soon found out that he was not the only conquistador that had visited the Spanish royals. 43-year-old Hernando Cortez had just dazzled the court with a procession of Aztec dancers, jugglers, singers, acrobats, and hunchbacks, all adorned with gold, silver, feathers, obsidian, and jade. King Charles V, so enamored by the parade of Aztec wonders, asked Cortez to sit alongside him near the throne during the procession. After the event, Cortez gifted the king two native creatures from the land he had conquered, an armadillo and a possum. King Charles V was enthralled by the presentation, and with a decree followed by a single stroke of the royal scepter, Francisco Pizarro's younger cousin became one of the wealthiest and most famous men in all of Europe. The king's meeting with Cortez greased the wheels for Pizarro's audience with the crown, but it also set a high bar. The day of the appointment, Pizarro paced in the palace. To the grizzled frontier soldier, who grew up as a rural pig farmer, the exquisite fineries of the royal court were staggering. They had gone over the scenario countless times, but they only had one shot. Everything hinged on how he was received by the rulers. Royal courtesans guided Pizarro into the throne room. He fiddled with an Inca trinket as he approached. The walls around him were adorned with immaculate masterpieces, paintings, sculptures, tapestries. The king and queen's faces revealed no emotion, all part of the royal presentation. Pizarro took a breath and began with his own story of leaving his impoverished town to find riches and glory fighting for Spain in the New World. He told of the exotic locales and dangerous situations he had found himself in. The royal's stifled demeanor slowly shifted to total curiosity as Pizarro went on. Pizarro waxed poetically about his line in the sand and his few loyal conquistadors with perfectly timed embellishments and carefully prepared flourishes. Pizarro had the king and queen on the edge of their seats. He then revealed the Inca gifts from Tumbez, llama fleece, intricately woven patterned textiles, and some gold idols and jewels. The two native interpreters echoed Pizarro's words and then spoke a bit of their native language. Pizarro ended his presentation with descriptions of the cities of gold high in the Andes Mountains. Pizarro insisted that those Inca lands should belong to Charles so that their gold would be stored in Spanish coffers and their souls would be saved by the grace of the Catholic God. The royal couple had seen immense wealth pour in from Cortez's conquest of Mexico, and if what Pizarro proclaimed was true, then a second, even larger empire could be theirs for the taking. The tale was too good to pass up. So Charles V agreed to sign off on the conquest. The monarch had to leave for another coronation for yet another title in Italy. So the royal contract was signed by Queen Isabella, the granddaughter of Isabella of Castile, who had been the patron of Christopher Columbus. Pizarro's corporation, the Company of the Levant, would be granted sole rights to discover, conquer, pacify, and populate the western coast of South America, which the contract christened New Castile. Pizarro was named Captain General of the Expedition and Governor of the Region. The queen also promoted Pizarro to a knight in the prestigious Order of Santiago, in effect, making Pizarro a crusader for Christianity. The royal charter gave Pizarro 30 African slaves, several dozen horses, and some Dominican monks to underscore the religious nature of the expedition. But for everything else, ships, weapons, supplies, men, Pizarro was on his own. 
However, it was the best possible outcome for the meeting. The royal license for the expedition was all that he needed to recruit soldiers and raise funds. Several wealthy investors were willing to risk quite a bit of capital on any New World voyages. He arranged provisions and transportation, but knew he had to be careful with his recruits. Mutinies and betrayals were all too common on expeditions, and trust was something money often couldn't buy. So, as his supplies were being collected and loaded onto ships, he took a trip back to his hometown in Extremadura to recruit people he trusted. He returned home a conquering hero. His old friends and extended family gathered around to hear of the wonders of the New World. Pizarro ended his stories with a proposition, sell your belongings and join me on an adventure of a lifetime and help me conquer cities of gold. Pizarro's younger family members were practically crawling over each other to accept his offer. This dry land of thin crops was filled with young men willing to risk it all for a better life. He left his hometown with four of his half-brothers, 29-year-old Hernando, 18-year-old Juan, 17-year-old Gonzalo, and 16-year-old Francisco Martin. It would take years to collect the supplies, buy weapons and artillery, board the ships, sail back across the Atlantic, buy more supplies in the Caribbean, land in Central America, cross the Isthmus, and arrive in the colony of Panama. But in 1530, Pizarro and his men were officially ready to begin the expedition. They had 180 men and 62 horses, several light cannons, dozens of muskets, and crates and crates of supplies. Pizarro's third and final expedition left Panama on December 27, 1530. From the onset, the expedition experienced Pizarro's characteristic bad luck. Harsh storms battered the ships, and a strong headwind swirling up the Pacific coast slowed their voyage to a crawl. But finally, Pizarro's navigator relayed that they were almost to the city of Tumbez. However, as they approached, something was amiss. No great boats patrolled the harbor. In fact, they saw no signs of life at all. As they approached the docks they had visited years before, they saw Tumbez lay in ruins. As they made landfall, they saw several natives amongst the rubble survivors that had lived in the few buildings that remained standing. The native interpreters who Pizarro had taken from Tumbez all those years before quietly wept as they saw their city in ruins. With Pizarro's urging, they asked the survivors what had happened. Slowly, the party of conquistadors began to piece together the story. The Sapa Inca, who had last been in charge, had died of a strange disease. Two of his sons fought in a vicious power struggle for their father's title, Tumbez had taken the side of Huascar, who had proved to be the wrong choice. Atahualpa's elite forces put the city under siege, and once the defenses failed, ransacked most of the buildings. They left it in ruins as a warning to all who would defy Atahualpa's rule. The disease that had killed Atahualpa's father had also swept through the empire and killed hundreds of thousands of people. Pizarro and his forces unloaded their supplies and made a base camp in the ghost town of Tumbez. Spanish scouts took to the countryside and interpreters tried to get as much information as they could. However, these surviving chiefs knew very little about the politics of the ongoing civil war and clammed up when pressed harder. One of the chiefs called the two interpreters traitors to their people and refused to answer any more questions. Pizarro responded by having the leaders tortured for more information then executed. Many of the Inca survivors fled into the mountains. Pizarro was distraught. Along the voyage, the captain general had told countless stories of the wondrous port city of Tumbez, 
He knew the bulk of his forces would not be loyal long unless he delivered results. Pizarro quickly urged his group to ascend the road leading uphill, as the riches of the empire surely rested in the glorious cities in the mountains. Slowly, the conquistadors climbed up the steep road into the high Andes. Atahualpa sat atop his ornate litter as he was carried along the mountain road. The Sapa Inca and his retinue were traveling south to Cuzco, the imperial capital city. The victory procession consisted of hundreds of Inca nobles, thousands of servants, and tens of thousands of loyal soldiers. Atahualpa was a tall, broad man with a barrel chest. He had dark copper skin and high cheekbones. The son of the sun calmly drank chicha from a cup made of a gold-plated human skull, the skull of a fierce general named Atok, who had sided with his brother Huascar. That brother was now a captive in the capital, and the war was all but over. Atahualpa's generals had retaken the city and executed every single member of Huascar's bloodline. This included distant relatives, wives, and even unborn heirs. Before returning to the capital city, Atualpa decided to stop and stay at a nearby hot spring. He would rest, fast, and then prepare for the task of reconstructing his empire after the Civil War. Just as he was about to reach the hot spring, an Inca noble approached and presented a report from the west. An unusual band of foreigners had landed at Tumbez and was making its way towards the mountains. While incursions like this happened all the time, this report contained all sorts of strange information. 168 hairy-faced pale men who possessed sticks that could shoot lightning on massive muscular llamas. It had been years since the first reports from Tumbez, but this raiding party seemed to match the descriptions of the men that had shown up years ago at the very same place. The foreigners had apparently captured and killed some Inca chiefs, but despite the aggression, Son of the Sun treated them as a mere curiosity and was more interested in the strange beasts they rode. Perhaps he could capture some of them to breed and use them to conquer even more territories. So, Son of the Sun paid little mind to these approaching adventurers. He did not send a force to meet them and instead would allow them to come to him. He had an army 100,000 strong and had finally wrested control of the entire empire. The further they ventured into his mountains, the harder it would be for them to escape. Atwalpa took another sip from his gilded skull, then stepped off the litter and towards the hot springs. As Pizarro's forces slowly made their way higher into the mountains, they faced no shortage of problems. For one, the horses fared poorly on the steep mountain roads. Each step was a laborious task that required several Spaniards often pushing the horse to urge it up to the next step. And with each of those steps, the mountain air became thinner and thinner. As they got higher, many Spaniards started vomiting from altitude sickness. Soon sleet and snow covered their progress even more. Frostbite took the lives of several horses. But they pushed onward. Pizarro and his men traveled on well-cut stone roads and crossed huge, swaying bridges made of woven vines. They ran into a few villages on their way. Each encounter went the same. Pizarro pressed the leaders for information and reacted with extreme violence towards any resistance. Some of these villages believed the Spaniards to be divine beings or demigods, but this belief was shattered after spending even a little time with them. The conquistadors took what they pleased from the Inca storehouses 
and raped a few Inca women. They looted the shrines devoted to gods in the official Inca pantheon. The Dominican friars ordered religious relics to be destroyed and consecrated the shrines to rid them of their obviously demonic influence. The Spaniards' lust for gold and silver confounded the natives, and many assumed these strange foreigners must eat precious metals for sustenance. Some Inca citizens who encountered the Spanish declared that they were possessed by evil spirits. One day, the conquistadors came across one of the famed Inca storehouses. They were astounded at what they found inside. Tens of thousands of sweet potatoes, stacked copper bars, piles and piles of fine linen, enough food and provisions to supply the entire town many times over, simply stored for safekeeping and distributed in times of need. As the days dragged by, Pizarro gained a better understanding of the terrain. With the help of his interpreters and occasional bouts of torture, he was able to create a rough map of the area and did his best to ascertain the location of the royal city and the size of the armies guarding it. One day, out of the blue, an Inca messenger in noble regalia approached Pizarro's camp from the south. He stated that the leader of this land, the Son of the Sun, had invited Pizarro to a nearby town where they could formally meet. He was stationed at a hot spring nearby with his armies. Pizarro accepted. As the news spread throughout the camp, the conquistadors felt a flood of conflicting emotions. They were joyful to be so close to their goal, but terrified to be so deep in the mountains, surrounded by an imperial army of indeterminate size. Most were poor and illiterate, and all were over 5,000 miles from home. Pizarro pressed his men forward, assuring them that they would be rich as kings within the month. After a few days' march, they crossed over a mountain ridge. Below them, in a green valley, sat the small town of Cayamarca. The careful handiwork of the Inca stonemasons was on full display. A stone temple rose from the center of the city at the head of a wide open plaza. Drainage canals and roads cut through the surrounding thatched roof houses that expanded out from the wide open central square. The town was almost completely abandoned. Disease had ravaged the city and the remaining population had been forcibly evacuated during the war. Another emissary from the Sapa Inca told Pizarro and his captains that Atahualpa would be arriving soon. Pizarro ordered his men to enter the city and make camp there. The Spaniards found plenty of uninhabited houses, and many of the skittish Inca survivors fled upon seeing these strange men arrive. As the conquistadors made camp, they saw an Inca procession approach in the far distance. Some donned their armor and took positions. Pizarro evaluated the defensive positions in the city, Large walls made of well-cut stone surrounded the wide-open central square. The square only had two entrances and was flanked on both sides by thin gallery buildings with windows looking into the plaza. It was a perfect defensible position, and it was also a perfect place to spring a trap. Conquering this native empire would require cunning and reckless bravery. Hernan Cortez had seized the Aztec king in a swift move of reckless daring. Pizarro intended to do the same. As the sun set, the Inca procession began to make camp far outside the city. Pizarro ordered his men to take shifts watching for movement throughout the night. As the evening turned to twilight, a bright tapestry of stars spread across the sky. But something was off. The scouts noticed it first. The night sky seemed too big for the valley surrounding Cayamarca, almost as if the stars spilled over the skyline. Slowly, the Spaniards on watch realized... Those weren't stars. They were campfires. 
panic spread through the restless Spaniards' camp. Many awoke from their sleep to get a view of the hillsides around them. The campfires were too numerous to count. Many of the conquistadors broke down, sobbing. Several urinated in their pants out of pure fear. The horrified Spaniards did what they could to sleep. The next morning, the full size of the Inca forests was revealed. Tents and shelters lined the hillsides down the valley and out of sight. One of Pizarro's captains put his estimate of the Inca strength in the tens of thousands, and that was just what they could see. Pizarro did his best to encourage his men by insisting that they were protected by God and that their superior weaponry and courage would prevail. As the hours ticked by, there was no sign of an advance. The nervous Spaniards arranged their weapons in the long buildings that flanked the courtyards. Some of the men sharpened their swords with pumice stones or practiced with their swords by tossing sweet potatoes in the air and splitting them with slashes. The restless Pizarro seemed to never take his eyes off the encamped army. Finally, he ordered one of his best captains, Hernando de Soto, to approach the Grand Army of the Inca and ask for a meeting with Atahualpa in person. Hernando de Soto was unmatched on horseback and an accomplished conquistador in his own right. De Soto, a translator, and a few other select Spaniards set off from Cayamarca on horseback. As they approached the outskirts of the Inca army, an Inca noble came to meet with them. The noble gave directions to the bathhouse where the Sapa Inca was currently residing. As they galloped along the road, the Inca military camps stretched for miles. DeSoto scanned the groups of Inca warriors as they went. He estimated the Grand Army of the Inca had somewhere between 50 and 80,000 troops, the legions of infantry motionlessly watching the strangers from either side. Eventually, they arrived at the stone bathhouse. An Inca servant led them inside. They entered into a beautiful courtyard. Smells of alpaca meat melded with the sulfuric scent from the water of the hot springs. In the center of this courtyard was an artificial pool of smooth stone. Two fountains poured water into the baths, one steaming hot, the other icy cold. Each fountain could be adjusted to provide a water temperature of the Sapa Inca's preference. Atahualpa sat on a small ornate stool next to the hot spring pool. He wore an immaculate headdress with beautiful golden loops that held up a vibrant red royal fringe that dangled just above the center of his eyebrows. Although Atahualpa did not look up, his demeanor and the deference of those around him made it obvious to DeSoto that this was the great Inca ruler. Having killed countless natives in combat, the brash DeSoto rode his horse directly up to the emperor, approaching so close that his horse's breath fluttered the red royal fringe. Atahualpa, confronted by a thousand-pound animal he had never laid eyes upon before, ridden by a bearded man in gleaming armor who looked down upon him from almost ten feet up in the air, didn't so much as flinch. DeSoto launched into a prepared speech about God, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, divine laws, honor, the Apostles' Creed, and a governor named Francisco Pizarro. The translator struggled to keep up. Through the speech, the Sapa Inca merely gazed at the ground, never once looking up to meet the eyes of this foreigner. A painfully long silence followed the conclusion of the conquistador's speech, until one of the Inca chiefs in the courtyard informed DeSoto that the son of the sun was on the last day of a ceremonial fast that included a temporary vow of silence. At this moment, the Sapa Inca finally looked up and replied to DeSoto. 
His voice was deep and smooth, with the gravity of someone revered as a god. He mentioned that several of his provincial rulers had reported atrocities committed by DeSoto's comrades. Tales of slaughter and burning chiefs alive. DeSoto knew it was all true, and astoundingly accurate for events that happened so far away so recently. But he simply smiled and denied all of these claims. He insisted that the Governor General Pizarro was fair and just, and that all of the Spaniards had merely acted in self-defense. Atahualpa's face remained motionless. Again, silence filled the courtyard. The Sapa Inca then mentioned a local rebellion by a provincial chief, one of the last who had allied with his now-captured traitorous brother. He asked if the Spanish would join him in conquering that territory. De Soto responded with a boast. The emperor need not send any Inca warrior with them, he replied, for only ten Spaniards on horseback could conquer any territory the Inca wished. Atahualpa smiled, then laughed. The other Inca lords in the courtyard nervously followed suit. It seemed the tension had subsided enough for Atahualpa to offer the Spaniards drinks. At first, they refused, fearing poison, but the Inca insisted. Finally, De Soto agreed, and they all drank some chicha corn beer from the pristine golden goblets. De Soto had keenly noticed that Atahualpa and many of the other Inca lords showed an intense interest in the Spaniards' horses. So, in a risky display in the courtyard of the bathhouse, De Soto pulled on the reins of his horse and it reared up, whinnying as it stood up on its hind legs. Several Inca lords backed away in panic, spilling drinks on the bathhouse floor. Elite Inca bodyguards poured into the courtyard, ready to protect their leader. All the while, Atahualpa did not move a muscle. As De Soto spun his horse around, Atahualpa told him that he would meet with the Governor Pizarro the next day in the central square of Cayamarca. De Soto thanked the Saba Inca and then exited the bathhouse. The sun started to set as the strange foreigners galloped away. Atahualpa then ordered every man who had flinched in the courtyard to be immediately executed for their cowardice. As the Sapa Inca retired to his chambers, he had made his decision. Tomorrow, he would enter Cayamarca, capture every Spaniard, kill most, and castrate the rest. He would then seize the magnificent mounts the strangers rode, and then have the empire's greatest llama breeders breed them in great numbers. And with his new army of cavalry, he would conquer the entire continent. De Soto arrived back at Cayamarca after sunset. Clouds rolled in and a light rain fell on the valley. De Soto entered Pizarro's quarters to see all of the captains surrounding a crude map of the town. Pizarro motioned De Soto inside to get them all up to speed. After they were caught up, they started pitching ideas to Pizarro. The group was split. Some wanted to attempt a kidnapping of the Sapa Inca right as he arrived, akin to what Cortez had done with the Aztec. The maneuver would be bold, but risky. If at first they didn't succeed, they would be quickly overwhelmed by waves and waves of Inca warriors. Others wanted to follow up on De Soto's boast and volunteer to fight some of the Inca's battles until they had gained his trust. This way, they could gather more information about the empire, and once they became close with Atahualpa, they could capture him at a later date. But this risked Atahualpa using the Spaniards as pawns, potentially losing some of the few men and horses they had. And while in the Sapa Inca's service, Atahualpa could seize their weapons at any point. Every proposal was fraught with danger. The light rain turned to a downpour. The problem was they did not know when Atahualpa would show up and with how many troops. 
They estimated a few thousand of his soldiers could fit in the courtyard, but if those were the God King's elite palace guard, battle-hardened and armed to the teeth, the conquistadors stood no chance, even with superior armor and firepower. The captains looked at Pizarro, whose eyes darted back and forth in the firelight. He had no answers. The heavy rain turned to hail. Pizarro ordered his men to get some sleep. Tomorrow would be a long day, and perhaps the most important of each of their lives. One by one, the captains left the governor general's quarters. Once alone, Pizarro let loose a heavy sigh as the hail battered the thatched roof above him. He tried and failed to sleep. Early the next morning, the artillery captain, the giant Greek Pedro de Candia, began setting up the four cannons that they had brought with them on horseback. He also set up the muskets on their stands. He situated each of these firearms in the windows of the long buildings and faced them inwards towards the open plaza. The head priest of the expedition, a rotund Dominican friar named Vincent de Valverde, held a Catholic service attended by most of the conquistadors. The ragged Spaniards huddled around the priest, rubbing their hands together to ward off the cold of the alpine air. The friar proclaimed, It is certain that whatever transpires today has been ordained by God. All has been arranged by his will. After the brief service, the men sharpened their swords and donned their armor. Some lingered behind to receive blessings from the friar and to ask for forgiveness for their sins. Pizarro did his best to cheer up the conquistadors and prevent the atmosphere from feeling like a funeral. The clouds from last night's hailstorm had cleared up, and soon sunlight crawled across the valley floor, illuminating the town. The Spaniards then surrounded the walls of the courtyard, waiting for orders from Pizarro. They situated themselves in the long buildings, near the few windows and doors. The cavalry were stationed behind one of the only two exits. From the vantage point of the 600 by 600 foot plaza, None of the Spaniards were visible, save for a few musket and cannon barrels. Pizarro decided to trust his instincts and told his men that he would make the decision to negotiate, attack, be friendly, or flee as the situation unfolded. This did little to ease the conquistadors' nerves. As the hours ticked by, the Spaniards shuffled nervously in their armor. The scouts on the edge of town saw no movement from the Inca forces. By noon, still nothing. Pizarro weighed his options. He could send a horseman forward to ask what the delay was, but decided against it. The hours dragged by. In the early afternoon, a Spanish scout ran back from the outskirts of the city. The message was relayed through the hiding Spaniards back to Pizarro. They're coming. Pizarro's captains quickly ran from position to position, readying the waiting conquistadors. The Incan forces poured out of their camps and assembled into two perfect formations, which advanced in parallel along either side of the stone road to Cayamarca. Most of the Spaniards were hiding in their positions and couldn't see the approaching forces, but they could feel it, a low rumble of tens of thousands of footsteps on stone. Of those that could get a good view of the advancing army, many vomited or shook uncontrollably out of fear. The Dominican friar, Vincent de Valverde, took his position in the central square. He clutched his cross and Bible, muttering prayers under his breath. As the two formations of Inca warriors reached the outskirts of Cayamarca, they stopped and turned towards the road between them, where a procession slowly followed. At the front were servants in colorful tunics, using brooms to sweep the ground, as if the very dust on the street was a sign of disrespect towards their god-emperor. 
After the street sweepers came dancers, performing a ceremonial dance that showed reverence to their Sapa Inca. Next came the ceremonial guard, thousands of soldiers wearing armor decorated with a rainbow chessboard pattern. As they entered the plaza, Pizarro examined the troops from a small window in one of the long buildings. He noted that few of these soldiers were armed at all, and those that were only wielded small ceremonial bronze hand axes. The ceremonial guard poured into the plaza and assembled into formations that soon filled most of the space. Following them were clearly important members of the Inca nobility, each surrounded by their servants and standard bearers. They wore long tunics woven with almost impossibly intricate patterns and were all adorned with jewelry of gold, silver, pearls, gemstones, and painted shells. Finally, when the square was almost full, the royal litter was carried in. The platform glittered with gold. Rainbow plumes of macaw feathers bloomed out from a golden throne upon which sat the son of the sun, Atahualpa. He wore the royal headdress from which hung the crimson imperial fringe. Several large emeralds, each the size of a man's fist, hung from the Sapa Inca's neck. The people carrying the litter all wore matching vibrant blue uniforms. Atahualpa looked down from his throne on high. Chest forward, glaring bloodshot eyes focused on the sole Spaniard in the courtyard, the slack-jawed cleric in brown robes tied at the waist. Atahualpa's litter stopped upon reaching the center of the plaza. Reflections from the gold danced in the shadows of the soldiers in formation. A servant of the Sapa Inca gave the signal for the priest to approach. The squat priest motioned for his interpreter, then walked through the rows and rows of soldiers, and stopped before Atahualpa's shining litter. The friar opened with an offer to speak in the shade of one of the buildings, a plan concocted by Pizarro in an attempt to make the emperor easier to capture. Atahualpa refused. The friar nodded and then began a speech that was both a justification and an ultimatum. The Catholic priest proclaimed that God had created the heavens and the earth, and that he had bestowed power in the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor who had authority over all nations of the earth, including these barbarian peoples. Spaniards hiding outside of the walls of the square clutched their weapons and pressed up against the cold stone, trying to hear how the conversation was going. After the conclusion of the speech, silence gripped the square. In this moment, two opposing empires, two opposing religions, two opposing ideologies, and two opposing worlds faced off. Atahualpa asked if these things the robed man claimed came from the book he was holding. Valverde said they did. The interpreter's translation made it appear as if these intruders' god somehow resided inside this strange book. Atualpa asked to see it and reached down from the litter. The friar stepped forward and handed it to him. Pizarro stood alongside Pedro de Candia and a cannon, looking intently at Atualpa's face. For a few moments, the Sapa Inca struggled with understanding the book, as he had never seen one before, nor the strange markings within. But from the Kipu runner reports, these strange foreigners seemed to speak to these white square leaves marked with black symbols. He thumbed through the pages and marveled at the complexity of the symbols within. Having finished his inspection, Atahualpa tossed the book off the litter at Valverde's feet. This foreign king had outwardly rejected a holy book, and in doing so, he had unknowingly violated a sacred law that gave the Spaniards a formal pretense for war. Valverde's eyes widened, and he scrambled back towards the other Spaniards. Pizarro hesitated for only a moment, then turned to his artillery commander. Fire. 
Plumes of smoke blasted out of the cannons as grapeshot shrapnel sliced through the Inca formations. A volley of musket fire cut down an entire row. Dozens of Inca turned to pink mist, and a spray of blood and body parts rained down upon the mass of warriors. The royal litter swayed as the men carrying it recoiled from the noise and chaos, but they held their ground. Spanish cavalry now poured in from the only exits. Hundreds of Inca warriors fell to the ground, spurting blood. To the Inca, the Castilian cannon sounded like booming thunder, the neighing of horses like demonic laughter. The Inca and the square all panicked simultaneously and fled for the few exits there were. As the friar returned to the Spanish line, he yelled out, Come out, Christians! Fight these native dogs! I have already absolved you of the bloodshed. The conquistador infantry now spilled into the square, slashing at the native warriors with their razor-sharp steel swords. Spanish cavalrymen with lances swept along the edge of the thronging mass of fleeing Inca, skewering several with each pass. Some Inca soldiers fought valiantly, but their ceremonial hand axes shattered against the Spaniards' metal pauldrons and chainmail. Another volley of coordinated musket fire cut down another wave. The entire square was now drenched in blood. The Incas piled up against the wall in a desperate attempt to escape. Hundreds were trampled or suffocated at the bottom of piles of bodies. Among the pandemonium, Atahualpa ordered his troops to fight back, but his panic-stricken men could barely hear him over the clanging of swords and the screams of the dying. The conquistadors moved as units, methodically slicing off Inca arms, legs, and heads. Pizarro led a group of infantry into the fray, slashing as they went. They advanced on their goal in the center of the square, Atahualpa on his litter. But as they did, a horde of Inca warriors swarmed beneath the litter to protect their leader. Their bodies stacked up below the lifted platform as they fell to the conquistador's swords. The royal litter bearers never gave up, refusing to give an inch until they were slain. The Spaniards sliced off the Inca servants' hands, but they continued to hold up the litter with their bloody stumps. Pizarro urged his troops closer, and they almost succeeded in tipping the litter over, but the mass of devoted royal servants who had been fleeing noticed their emperor in peril and rallied under the litter to continue to hold it up. In the corners of the square, squadrons of conquistadors massacred the fleeing warriors. The pile of bodies grew so high that some Inca now managed to clamber up the mound and flee over the wall of the plaza. Spaniard and Inca alike struggled to find their footing on the stone ground now made slick with blood. Pizarro pushed closer to Atahualpa in the chaos of battle, a sword in one hand, a dagger in the other. Finally, as the sun was dipping under the hills, the litter tipped enough that Pizarro reached up and yanked Atahualpa from his throne. Another Spaniard, lost in the bloodlust of combat, swung his sword at the Sapa Inca's head. Pizarro reached out with his hand to parry the blow. The sword cut into Pizarro's hand, but he had saved their prized captive. Pizarro, covered head to toe in blood, withdrew to the stone temple with Atahualpa in tow. For another hour, the slaughter continued, with the Spanish horsemen cutting down fleeing warriors in the golden light of sunset. The Spaniards only stopped pursuing when they ran out of sunlight. Trumpets sounded from the bloody square of Cayamarca, the signal to regroup there. The conquistadors waded through gore and countless severed limbs. They hugged each other, made signs of the cross, and cheered. 
Pizarro left the captive Sapa Inca in a stone room in the temple, with several conquistadors guarding him. Everyone was exhausted, but Pizarro ordered a continual guard against a possible Inca counterattack. In the span of about two hours, the 168 conquistadors had killed roughly 7,000 Inca and captured their god-king, all without losing a single man. And just like that, Francisco Pizarro brought an empire twice the size and population of his native Spain to its knees. The wide-eyed Atahualpa didn't say a word. He remained in a daze as the Spaniards removed his royal clothes that were drenched in the blood of his men. They brought him a clean, plain tunic. Pizarro ordered a constant guard on the outskirts of Cayamarca, but allowed some of his men to finally rest. The conquistadors, sore from the hours-long slaughter, finally drifted away to sleep, some for the first time in over 48 hours. A large meal was prepared and brought into the captive king's guarded room. Pizarro, along with some of his captains and interpreters, sat down alongside a stone table and began to eat. As Pizarro cut slabs of llama meat and placed it on the plates, he explained to Atahualpa who he was. He went into detail of how many kingdoms he had already conquered, exaggerating his prior battles and even claiming his cousin Cortez's conquests as his own. Atahualpa ate slowly, listening intently to the interpreter while trying to get a read on his foreign captors. Pizarro concluded his speech with an offer. If Atahualpa remained loyal and kept his men at bay, he could retain his position as a regional monarch under the Spanish rule of Charles V. Even after the interpreter finished the translation of the governor general's offer, the Sapa Inca remained silent for some time. He knew he would have to choose his words and actions carefully in order to survive in captivity. Atualpa swiftly jumped to his feet. Bizarro raised his hand to stop his captains from drawing their weapons. The Sapa Inca walked over to a nearby wall. He stood on his tiptoes and pointed to a spot high up on the carved stone. He told them he could fill the entire room they were in with gold up to that line, and a room twice that size with silver, only if the Spaniards spared his life. When the translator finished with Atahualpa's claim, the Spaniards' reactions were mixed. Some laughed, others made signs of the cross, but Francisco Pizarro simply stared at Atahualpa. The conquistador and the conquered king's eyes met for some time before Pizarro turned to his men and deemed the Sapa Inca to be telling the truth. They would worry about the logistics tomorrow. For now, they all needed sleep. The meal was cleared and everyone left the room except for Pizarro and Atahualpa. With half a dozen guards outside the stone room, the weathered Captain General and his god Emperor captive settled into an uneasy sleep. Tomorrow, the fate of the Inca Empire would be decided. The next day, emissaries from various Inca nobles entered Cayamarca, seeking an audience with Atahualpa. They were allowed in, one by one. The Spaniards had multiple loyal translators sit in on every meeting to ensure that Atahualpa did not give any secret orders to ready an army and arrange a counterattack for his rescue. Pizarro allowed the Sapa Inca to maintain his royal traditions. Atahualpa communicated from behind a shroud, so that mere messengers could not gaze upon the god-king's form. Many of the messengers groveled on the ground and lamented the situation the Sapa Inca now found himself in. However, Atahualpa continued to speak with an aura of complete authority, 
and soon the messengers departed for every corner of the empire with orders to bring offerings of gold to the still bloody city of Cayamarca. Pizarro, meanwhile, kept up a constant guard on the outskirts of the city, and soon sent Hernando de Soto, along with 30 other horsemen, to investigate Atahualpa's old camp. As they galloped into the Inca camp, they could feel the tension in the air. However, the paralyzed Inca army did not attack. Most Inca soldiers remained in their tents. De Soto delivered orders from Atahualpa to the Inca commanders. They were to bring all gold and silver in the camp to Cayamarca, then disperse. The commander's own messengers returned to the nearby city and confirmed these orders to be true. With clenched teeth, the Inca leaders delivered the valuables to the Spaniards, then packed up their camps and returned from whence they came. After a few days, Inca laborers started to arrive with llamas laden with gold and silver. They brought plates, goblets, statues, jewelry, and trinkets made of silver and gold and placed them in the large stone room in the temple at Cayamarca. Wide-eyed Spanish soldiers cheered with each new arrival of precious metals. The more educated of the conquistadors began doing the math regarding the sheer amount of wealth being brought in. Their calculations blew away even the most lofty aspirations they originally had for the expedition, and more and more was arriving every single day. As weeks passed, the piles of gold in the ransom room grew ever higher. Pizarro gave the order to construct a furnace to begin melting down some of the objects to make room for more. One by one, the conquistadors threw goblets, rings, headpieces, threshold crests, plates, kitchen utensils, trinkets, and various golden works of art into the furnace. Thousands upon thousands of hours of work by the greatest craftsmen the empire ever produced were melted down to their component parts and then smelted into gold and silver bars. As weeks passed, Pizarro mapped out the extent of the Inca Empire with the help of Atahualpa and the other Inca nobles that came to pay tribute to him. During this time, Atahualpa was almost always in the company of one of the captains who took turns guarding him and asking questions about the empire. When Atahualpa was alone with the captains, he dropped his imperial god-king facade. He was cheerful and friendly, ordering his servants to provide the captains with chicha beer and coca leaves a stimulant reserved for Inca nobility. A number of captains grew fond of him, especially de Soto and Pizarro's half-brother Hernando. The Spanish leaders quickly realized that Atahualpa was not like many of the rulers back in Europe, who tended to be pampered and dulled by their power and wealth. This ruler was sharp as a tack, learning the Spanish language incredibly quickly. Within a few weeks, Atahualpa had such command of the Spanish language that he was making jokes and puns in the conquistador's native tongue. When he appeared wearing a dark brown cloak one day, the Spaniards were awed by its softer than velvet texture. In answer to their curiosity, Atahualpa told them it was made out of the skins of vampire bats. When the Spanish captains asked how it was possible to collect so many bats to create such a large cloak, Atahualpa grinned and replied in Spanish, What else did his subjects have to do? which amused the captains in the chamber with him. To pass the time guarding Atahualpa, the conquistador captains would often play cards and dice, often gambling some of their loot they had acquired on the conquest thus far. But the most popular game among Pizarro's officers was chess. They had painted a crude chessboard and created rough chess pieces out of clay. For hours each day, the captains would play chess as their captive king looked on. One day, during a game, 
DeSoto lifted his knight, but as he did, Atahualpa spoke up. No, Captain, the rook. DeSoto saw that he would be leaving his rook exposed by moving his knight, so DeSoto followed Atahualpa's advice, and sure enough, achieved a checkmate just a few turns later. Atahualpa was soon playing chess with DeSoto and the other captains frequently, and within weeks was regularly winning games against them. He called the game Toptana, which meant surprise attack. He became obsessed with the game, perhaps compensating for his situation, which had been brought about by Pizarro's surprise attack in the town square months before. By this point, over 500 pounds of gold and silver arrived from every corner of the empire every single day. All the while, Atahualpa continued to amaze the Spanish captains with stories about the marvels of the Inca capital of Cuzco, the crown jewel of the empire. Pizarro was wary to send any of his men south to Cuzco. Several armies, numbering in the hundreds of thousands, waited in the mountains to their north and to their south. He had to plan their next move carefully. But eventually, captivated by the tales of this wondrous capital city, Pizarro decided to send a few men south. He gathered three volunteers for an expedition to the Inca capital. Atahualpa ensured their safety by ordering a retinue of soldiers to escort the three men, who would each be carried on their own litter and treated like nobility. Over a game of chess, Pizarro casually reminded his royal prisoner that if any harm were to befall these three men, then Atahualpa would pay with his life. Despite his position in captivity, the Sapa Inca remained confident in his rule and accepted Pizarro's terms. And with that, the group of Spaniards began their journey south. The three conquistador volunteers came from nothing, similar to their captain general. Two had been fishermen in southern Spain, and the other was a lower scribe from the Basque territories of northern Spain. They would be the first Europeans to travel along the jagged spine of the Andes, witnessing the numerous cloud cities of the Inca. From their positions high atop the litters, usually reserved for only Inca lords, the three Spaniards were carried through the valleys flanked by colossal green mountains, past towering blue-green glaciers, and across giant hanging bridges made from braided vines over steep gorges. They passed through countless Inca cities and villages, with the wide-eyed Inca populace confused but obeying the orders they received from above. Throughout the voyage, the three Spaniards enjoyed the finest food, drink, and amenities the empire could offer. After weeks of travel through the stone roads that carved through the impossible Andean terrain, they finally arrived at the capital of the Inca Empire. Cuzco rose out of a broad valley before them, and the Spaniards could hardly believe their eyes. Atahualpa had not been exaggerating. Walls made of perfectly cut 30-ton stones surrounded the city. Towering fortresses rose up over thousands of multi-tiered structures, all complete with gardens, pools, and plazas. But what truly struck the foreigners was the gold. Nearly every building was adorned with gold capstone, trim, and decorations. In the light of the sun, all of this gold gave the illusion of a city bathed in a golden fire. The Inca convoy carried the wide-eyed trio of Spaniards into the marvelous capital of Cuzco. They were soon met by the leader of Atahualpa's southern forces, the High General Quisquis, who had carried out the massacre against Atahualpa's brother Huascar and his family. He currently held the city under a strict military occupation until Atahualpa himself was to arrive. At least, that was the plan until the Sapa Inca had been captured by these pale men 
from across the sea. Kiskis gazed up at these strange men, his fierce dark eyes burning with disdain. He wore a mantle on his shoulders of the finest alpaca wool. On his chest sat a golden plate, a symbol of his countless victories won on Atahualpa's behalf. His demeanor was so intimidating that his subordinates scarcely looked at him. However, the powerful general had strict orders from the Sapa Inca himself to guide these hairy-faced foreigners through the city and provide them with whatever they should require. The Spaniards gawked as they were carried through the immaculate capital, the central hub of a road network over 25,000 miles long. They passed storehouses filled to the ceiling with goods made by millions of industrious citizens and buildings crafted from stone that they had described as chunks of entire mountains. General Kiskis escorted them to the Coricancha, the Grand Temple of the Sun. Gold adorned almost every surface of the massive stone structure. Outside, several Inca high priests described through interpreters the complex cleansing rituals required before entering the sacred temple. However, the Spaniards paid them no mind and excitedly ran inside to find hundreds of golden statues and religious artifacts. Six-foot-long gold plates lined all of the walls. A single one of these panels was enough to buy an entire ship back in Spain. Armed with copper crowbars, the three Spaniards planted their dirty boots against the sacred temple's walls and grunted as they pried off these golden panels one by one. Virgin priestesses who performed rituals for Inti, the god of the sun, collapsed in tears as the three conquistadors tossed gold plates, statues, and ornaments in front of the temple like a pile of scrap metal. The retinue of porters sent by Atahualpa then loaded the golden objects onto platforms to be returned to Cayamarca. General Quisquis and the priests stood by in disbelief. It took every ounce of willpower the Inca general had to follow the orders from Atahualpa and to not kill the three foreigners looting their most sacred temple on the spot. Over the next few days, the three conquistadors in Cusco went to the estates mapped out by Atahualpa to take gemstones and other precious artifacts. The houses they looted, of course, were owned by Atahualpa's fiercest political enemies. Atahualpa's promise to Pizarro of riches beyond imagining and opening the capital up to the invaders may have appeared as a desperate decision by a horrified man bargaining for his life. But every decision made by the captive Sapa Inca was carefully calculated. Having given Pizarro directions for how to best loot the capital city of Cusco, Atahualpa now possessed a technologically advanced army he could point in any direction he pleased. The first palaces he gave his blessing to loot were those of his most fervent rivals, Inca nobles who had sided with his brother Huascar. These members of the upper crust of the Inca caste system stood wide-eyed as foreign conquerors looted their most prized possessions with apparent permission from a ruler they never once supported. Atahualpa continually spoke of the riches of Cusco while never once mentioning the northern city of Quito, where he intended to move the imperial Inca capital to once he had finally rid himself of these gold-crazed conquistadors. For now, Atahualpa knew he just had to bide his time. Back in Cayamarca, Pizarro and the captains continued to piece together the political situation surrounding the recently fought civil war. They continued to ask Atahualpa about his brother, Huascar. Atahualpa knew Huascar had been captured, 
but was careful to avoid details and steered the conversation away from his brother as best he could. He had originally planned to parade Huascar around Cusco in chains upon returning to the imperial capital, but for now, that was obviously out of the question. Atahualpa now had a choice to make. He could order his men to bring the captive Huascar to Cayamarca and present his enemy to the Spanish as another act of good faith. But that carried certain risks. If Pizarro thought Huascar a better puppet emperor, he would have no further use of Atahualpa, and he would surely be executed. Atahualpa decided he would be most valuable to Pizarro if he was the only legitimate claimant of the title of Sapa Inca. So, while communicating to his royal messengers under the constant watchful eye of the Spanish interpreters, Atahualpa gave an order. Through innuendo and carefully coded phrases, the captive emperor told a Kipu runner in regards to Huascar, do what must be done. The message was understood by the Kipu runner, and within a few weeks, word came back to the Spanish camp that Atahualpa's brother Huascar had been killed. Troops loyal to Atahualpa slit his throat and unceremoniously tossed his body into a river. Some of Pizarro's captains were furious upon hearing the news, certain that Atahualpa had ordered the killing. The head Catholic priest demanded that Atahualpa immediately be put to death. But Pizarro's younger brother Hernando and Atahualpa's constant chess companion De Soto defended Atahualpa, saying that they had little use for a pretender to the throne. Atahualpa was confident he would be essential to Pizarro's future plans, as he had maintained plausible deniability while now being the only man with a strong claim on the throne. However, tensions in the Spanish camp grew over what to do with their captive king. On May 13, 1533, after the worst of the winter and a journey of over a thousand miles, the three Spaniards returned to Cayamarca with mountains of gold and silver carried upon the backs of countless llamas and Inca laborers. It had been three months since they had set off for the capital. They returned to a very different Cayamarca. The population of the city had swelled to account for the logistics of unloading precious metals and to house the servants and laborers for Atahualpa and the Spaniards' lavish lifestyles. They had been here for months, and the massacre in the town square now seemed like a distant memory. Whispers of encroaching armies led by an alliance of Inca nobles from elsewhere in the empire swirled in the Spanish camp. Pizarro had seized the Sapa Inca in an instant. He knew he could lose that vast fortune in an instant. The priests, the captains, and Pizarro himself all grew paranoid. They were vastly outnumbered on all sides, with only a captive emperor to keep the tenuous peace. Pizarro began to wonder, who is the prisoner in Cayamarca? Atahualpa or himself? Some of Pizarro's fears were relieved when his old one-eyed business partner Diego de Almagro finally returned, and he was far from alone. With him, he brought another 153 conquistadors, 50 horses, along with tons of supplies, cannons, muskets, and ammunition. He left behind their six ships that now sat in Tumbez's harbor. Atahualpa's ransom of gold and silver now entirely filled the room as promised, with even more on the way. Finally reunited with his old friend and now resupplied with men and arms, Pizarro's confidence soared. Atahualpa, on the other hand, was devastated. Shortly after the arrival of the Spanish reinforcements, he overheard some of the Spanish captains argue about which lands they were going to rule over after the conquest. Atahualpa was no fool. 
his worst fears rang true, as he realized this was no band of raiders content to plunder and then return from whence they came. No, these Spaniards had come to conquer and then to rule, and Pizarro had no intentions of fulfilling his end of the bargain. Atahualpa was now going to face the full consequences of the checkmate in the town square of Cayamarca all those months before. Pizarro's younger half-brother Hernando ensured Atahualpa that he would be tried by a Spanish court, and perhaps if he converted to Catholicism, he could still rule over his people in some capacity. But soon, Hernando was tasked with escorting the royal portion of the plunder back to the Holy Roman Emperor. Around this time, Spanish scouts intercepted a messenger from the north. He claimed that Atahualpa had secretly sent out a message to his generals. An army of over 200,000 Inca soldiers now marched south, determined to rescue their emperor and expel the invaders. Much of the army consisted of tribal cannibals from the Amazon rainforest in the east, hungry for human flesh. They would arrive within the week. This information terrified the Spanish scouts, who mounted their horses and returned to Cayamarca as fast as they could. When they shared this news with the captains, they too were horrified. Pizarro immediately doubled the number of guards on the outskirts of the city, and then confronted Atahualpa, who was in the middle of a game of chess with DeSoto. Pizarro asked how the Sapa Inca could betray the Spaniards when they had treated him like a brother. Atahualpa scoffed at the accusation and claimed it to be a misinformation campaign schemed up by his opponents in Cuzco. Pizarro immediately ordered DeSoto to suit up and lead an expedition north to spot this encroaching army. DeSoto insisted to Pizarro that Atahualpa was telling the truth, but nevertheless got up and followed the Captain General's orders. And with that, Hernando DeSoto, Atahualpa's last remaining ally, left for the north. The chess game he abandoned would be the last they ever played. With DeSoto gone, Pizarro's men called for a trial of Atahualpa. Feeling claustrophobic and paranoid, Pizarro agreed to set up a trial for the next day. He sent someone to inform the captive emperor. Later that night, one of Atahualpa's underlings asked the Sapa Inca what his plans were regarding his defense in the trial. Atahualpa simply replied, I am already dead. The next morning, Pizarro organized 24 of his captains and the priests to act as both judge and jury for the trial of Atahualpa that evening. They spent most of the day discussing how they would vote. The conquistador captains fiercely argued for and against Atahualpa's execution. Those in favor of killing their captive emperor cited European laws of succession and argued that the attacking army would surely dissolve if they no longer had a claimant to the throne to liberate. Those arguing against Atahualpa's execution insisted that the conquest of the rest of the empire would be exceedingly difficult without a puppet ruler. The debate went on for hours. Pizarro was noticeably silent until he asked the present priests, Tell me, if Christ were here right now, would he order the death of this native king? They all fell silent as they each pondered their answer. The other conquistadors on guard eyed the surrounding hills nervously, looking for any signs of the advancing army. That afternoon, a trumpet sounded signaling the start of the trial. Atahualpa was brought out into the very square where he had been captured and read his crimes. Conspiracy against the Spanish crown, worship of false idols, fratricide against his brother. 
all of the Spaniards in attendance wore their armor in case the Inca forces attacked during the trial. After the reading of Atahualpa's crimes, each of the Spanish on the hastily thrown together tribunal cast their vote. Atahualpa, by this point, was well versed in Spanish and saw the tide turning against him. The Spaniards all agreed on his guilt, but not on his sentence. Discussions continued whether or not to send Atahualpa back to Spain for a more formal trial. It was a hung jury. Atahualpa stared directly at Pizarro, who couldn't seem to look at the captive king at all. The captain general looked around at the gathered crowd in the plaza, then towards the horizon. Atahualpa was worshipped as a god, his power unquestionable. If there was a massive army advancing on Cayamarca, then it must have been because Atahualpa had willed it. Pizarro voted to execute the Saba Inca. Atahualpa cried out that he could provide double the gold already brought to the ransom room. This last-minute offer didn't even seem to register on the Spaniards. As the Inca citizens gathered in the square realized the verdict, pandemonium spread. Screams and pleas for mercy echoed through the crowd. Several conquistadors drew their weapons to quell the onlookers. The razor-sharp steel kept the crowd at bay. Tears welled up in Atahualpa's eyes as Spaniards wedged a wooden stake into the ground behind him and began tying him to it. The penalty for his specific crimes was burning at the stake. Several conquistadors gathered wood and placed the planks at Atahualpa's feet. Many Inca in the crowd continued to wail, several falling to the ground like drunkards. Inca tradition held that no burnt corpse could reach the afterlife. In effect, not only was Atahualpa condemned to death, he was also condemned to hell. Friar Valverde, the very same friar who had been the first Spaniard to speak to Atahualpa on his litter in that very same spot, approached the ruler. He said that if Atahualpa converted to Catholicism, they would not burn his body and instead he would be strangled. Atahualpa ignored him and instead cried out towards Pizarro, who still could not bring himself to look at the bound king. He insisted that if the captain general did not spare his life, then at least spare his children's lives in Quito. He gave details of their appearance and signaled with his hands their heights so that the Spaniards would know to spare them. The friar Valverde told Atahualpa to not think of his children and instead think of his eternal soul, which still had a chance at salvation. Atahualpa screamed and struggled until the priest finally relented and said that Pizarro would ensure his children's safety. Reassured by the friar's promise, Atahualpa agreed to become a Christian. The friar prayed with Atahualpa, then baptized him in holy water. From that point, Atahualpa accepted his fate. He dried his eyes and stared ahead solemnly. Despite the cries from his subjects in the square, Atahualpa remained expressionless, even as the Spaniards tied a rope around his throat and the stake behind him. The conquistadors set up a garret, a loop of rope attached to a stick, which could be turned like a wheel tightening the rope until death. Cries continued throughout the town square. Friar Valverde then read Atahualpa his last rites as the soldiers behind him twisted the stick. Atahualpa remained stoic even as veins bulged on his forehead as the rope tightened around his neck. The last rites ended with a reading from Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As the sun set behind the hills on the evening of July 26, 1533, Atualpa, ruler and god of the united four corners of the Inca Empire, died at the hands of his Spanish captors. As Atahualpa's body fell limp, many of the Inca onlookers collapsed in despair. Several women in the crowd committed suicide by slitting their wrists upon seeing their slain god-king. Pizarro ordered a group of Spaniards to guard the body, while he and the other captains went to reinforce the defenses of the city and prepare for the imminent attack. Another friar lit the remaining wood beneath Atahualpa's body to fully carry out the consequences of the native ruler's sin. The flames licked at the corpse, but other than singeing his clothes and a bit of his skin, his body did not burn. Atahualpa's body was to remain on the stake above the ashes in the square as a reminder to the people, and so that the advancing army could quickly see it, perhaps revealing that a rescue attempt would be futile, therefore ending hostilities. The bearded and sunburnt Spaniards remained tense and on edge throughout the night. They watched the horizon and planned their defense of Cayamarca and their loot. The conquistadors, freezing in their armor, stood on guard throughout the night, expecting to hear the thuds and clanks of an approaching army at any moment. But eventually, the sun rose over the eastern mountains. No army was yet seen. Atahualpa's body remained in the town square, despite desperate pleas from the Inca nobility to begin a proper burial ceremony and mummification process. Pizarro declined because evidence of the dead ruler might be the only thing that could spare the Spaniards from being wiped out. Eventually, a few days after Atahualpa's execution, Hernando de Soto and the other Spanish scouts galloped back into Cayamarca. De Soto rode into the Spanish camp and dismounted with his usual flourish and approached an unusually downcast Francisco Pizarro. He reported his findings from the voyage north. They had looked far and wide, even interrogating local chiefs throughout the countryside in search for Inca troop movement. They had found nothing, and seeing as their information had been false, they headed back. But they had confirmed there was no advancing army. Pizarro, usually dour and stoic, was so shaken that he nearly collapsed. Then we have been deceived, he said. De Soto was caught off guard by his commander's reaction to the news, he then asked where Atahualpa was, perhaps wanting to finish the chess game they'd abandoned days before. Pizarro told De Soto about the trial and subsequent execution. Upon hearing this, De Soto flew into a rage. He yelled that he would have personally escorted Atahualpa back to Spain to be tried by King Charles himself. In an act bordering on insubordination, De Soto turned to Pizarro and said, We killed him for nothing, before storming off. The Spaniards would later find out that the story of an army of cannibals coming to rescue their emperor had been a lie cooked up by Inca nobles in Cusco, angry that their estates had been plundered. With no threat of an Inca attack, Pizarro spent much of the next few days in his quarters alone. Pizarro was now faced with the problem of what to do with Atahualpa's corpse. He finally decided that the sooner they disposed of the body, the sooner his memory would fade from the minds of the Inca populace. With little fanfare, the Spaniards buried the body 
in a shallow grave after a minor ceremony. Pizarro then began the process of dividing up each of the Spaniards' pay from the ransom room, which was now filled to the brim with gold and silver bars. Each conquistador was awarded 180 pounds of silver and 90 pounds of gold, which added up to hundreds of years' worth of manual labor back in Spain. If they so wished, no Spaniard in Cayamarca would ever have to work another day in their lives. All told, the amount of wealth in the ransom room totaled around 1.3 million pesos de oro. Adjusted for inflation, the total was well over half a billion dollars in today's money. The conquistadors were now given the option to leave, to return to Spain, or really anywhere they saw fit. Few conquistadors chose to leave. The ones that did were either older or had families to return to back in Europe. But most chose to continue on with Pizarro over an early retirement. In August of 1533, Pizarro, 500 conquistadors, thousands of loyal Inca warriors, and countless servants and porters packed up their belongings and began their long march south towards the legendary capital of Cusco. The Spaniards knew they needed to install another puppet leader, and fast. With the help of some loyal Inca nobility, they encountered Tupac Hualpa, a younger brother of Atahualpa and Huascar. He had been hiding in exile during the civil war between his two older brothers and was glad to don the royal fringe and join these foreigners in retaking Cusco, which was still occupied by General Quisquis. In an attempt to gain legitimacy and prevent local resistance, Pizarro spared no expense on an illustrious ceremony crowning Tupac Hualpa as the new Sapa Inca. With a new puppet emperor installed, they continued their march on Cusco. However, Tupac Hualpa soon fell ill. Within two months, he died from one of several European diseases, a fate he shared with millions of his countrymen. Desperate for another puppet leader, Pizarro and his captains chose an even younger brother of Atahualpa, Manco Yupanqui. The fact that he was still a teenager made the Spaniards even more certain they could control every decision for the empire for him. Over the next few months, Pizarro and the Spaniards continued their march on Cusco. Any local chieftains that resisted the Spanish advance were captured and burned at the stake. This terror campaign horrified the local Inca populace as they saw anyone who fought back forfeit their soul's afterlife. The Spaniards left a trail of charred corpses alongside the road as they went. Meanwhile, General Quisquis prepared for a siege. However, he failed to convince many of the Inca nobles in Cusco to join his cause. After all, he had slaughtered Huascar's entire bloodline in preparation for the arrival of Atahualpa. Nevertheless, Quisquis prepared his finest warriors for the defense of the city. After hearing continual reports of the power of the Spanish artillery, General Quisquis knew it would be impossible to defend the city from the walls and instead chose to meet them on the road. On November 4th, 1533, the Spanish cavalry were met with a surprise attack of elite Inca troops. Several horses were killed and many Spaniards were injured, but their heavy plate armor protected them and their steel weapons swung from on high eviscerated the Inca warriors donned only in cotton armor. Quisquis's worst fears were realized and he decided to make a tactical decision to save his army for another day. The Spaniards made camp just outside of Cusco and planned a full-scale attack into the city the next day. Meanwhile, Quisquis evacuated his forces from the capital. He ordered large fires to be burnt along the walls of the city to make the Spaniards think a large contingent of warriors was awaiting them there. In order to avoid being surrounded in a siege, he 
He took his army and fled to the outskirts of the Empire, higher into the mountains and deeper into the jungles, where the invaders' cannons and cavalry could not reach. The next morning, Pizarro was elated to find out that the famed general had fled. He promptly ordered a victory procession to enter the city. With the general fleeing with the majority of the Incan army, Cusco was declared an open city, wholly at the mercy of the young Manco Yupanqui and his Spanish puppet masters. The captain general and his forces marched into Cusco, sitting atop a golden throne on a litter, the very same that had brought Atahualpa into the town square of Cayamarca exactly one year ago. From this point forward, the Inca Empire can effectively be described as defeated. Francisco Pizarro now found himself atop the hierarchy of an entire empire with a young puppet god-king firmly in his grasp. He ordered all gold and silver objects to be presented to the Spanish to be shipped off back to Spain. The system of Mita, which required Inca subjects to provide labor instead of taxes, was greatly abused by the new Spanish overlords. Civic projects building infrastructure and assisting farming were all but abandoned. Instead, every ounce of Inca manpower and resources was rerouted to mining more gold and silver. Eventually, Manco Inca grew tired of being a leader in name only. He resented how the Spanish captains treated him. So one day, he fled Cusco with his bodyguards and went to join General Quisquis and the scattered remnants of the Inca army. Together, they formed what is today called the Neo-Inca State, which fought off colonization efforts from their bases deep in the jungles and high in the mountains. They would be a thorn in the Spaniard's side for decades. Back in Cusco, Pizarro and the other Spanish leaders attempted to crown yet another Sapa Inca, but quickly saw them lose legitimacy. Soon thereafter, they quit maintaining the facade of the old status quo and proclaimed to the entire populace of Peru that they were no longer part of the Inca Empire. They were now citizens of New Castile. Pizarro and his captains then went about carving up the empire. And with that came monumental disagreements about who had contributed more and debates about which lands were the most valuable. It was Diego de Almagro that was the most furious after the land and titles were doled out. The squat, one-eyed man had always viewed his relationship with Pizarro as that of equals. The new governor of New Castile, however, did not see it that way. Factions quickly formed and tensions between various captains, priests, and moneylenders grew to a fever pitch. Even members of the famous Thirteen, who had trusted Pizarro and crossed that line in the sand all those years ago, suddenly found themselves on opposing sides. All the while, thousands upon thousands of Europeans flocked to western South America in a gold rush, all eager to loot gold, pearls, and other resources from the decaying corpse of the Inca Empire. In addition to more conquistadors, Peru saw an influx of Spanish settlers hoping for a new life, as well as Catholic missionaries hoping to save the souls of millions of Inca heathens. In just a generation, lives of ordinary Inca were upended entirely. They lost their leader, they lost their religion, they lost their way of life, and they lost millions upon millions of their husbands, wives, brothers, sisters, relatives, and friends to an avalanche of various European diseases. All the while, mountains of gold and silver artifacts were melted down into bars, brought to Peruvian ports, and loaded onto Spanish vessels. Today, Inca artwork made from gold and silver is almost non-existent, as it was all melted down and taken to Europe. 
Back in Spain, ships packed to the brim with gold looted from across the New World poured into the harbors. The sheer amount of gold and silver brought into Spain is essentially incalculable. So many precious metals were brought into Spain that entire markets collapsed, and the whole economy of Western Europe crashed due to inflation. The long-term effects of this enormous transfer of wealth from South America to Europe can still be felt today. European coffers, filled to the brim with precious metals, funded wars and colonization efforts that allowed a Eurocentric stranglehold on the global markets for centuries. In Peru, now New Castile, things had gone from bad to worse. Palace intrigue fueled assassination attempts on several of the Spanish captains, and full-on warfare broke out between competing sides. Small rebellions had popped up across the remnants of the Inca Empire, and Spanish captains were blaming opposing factions for all of the strife. This all eventually coalesced into yet another civil war. Diego de Almagro's forces were quickly outmatched by Pizarro's, who had more assistance from the crown, and Almagro was soon captured. He was killed in the same way Atahualpa had been, by Garrett, in a dungeon underneath Cusco. Pizarro spent most of his time in the port city of Lima. Cusco, nestled high up in the cloud peaks of the Andes, was far too remote, so Pizarro had chosen Lima to be the colony's new capital. He spent most of his days entertaining guests in his sprawling governor's mansion. By 1541, Pizarro was completely gray in his late 60s, but was still as energetic and restless as ever. On the afternoon of Sunday, June 26th, he was having a meal with several members of Lima's provincial government. Earlier, they had gone to a morning mass in the newly constructed Catholic cathedral. A shroud of fog covered the port city. The light from the obscured sun looked more like that of the moon. They were eating in the dining hall on the second floor when they heard chanting coming from the courtyard. A servant ran in and told everyone to arm themselves, saying that a group of men was coming to murder them. Pizarro looked out into the courtyard to see about 20 heavily armed men, some of whom he recognized. They were supporters of the late Diego de Almagro, still angry from the outcome of the civil war and death of their leader. Six semper tyrannis, they shouted in unison, Latin for thus always to tyrants. A servant approached the group, and he was immediately run through by several of the attacker's swords. Pandemonium broke out as the dinner guests fled the scene. A few of Pizarro's native mistresses ran to hide in one of the bedrooms. Members of the city council quickly descended the stairs. Servants jumped from the second-story balcony to escape. Pizarro and his brother Martin began donning their armor as fast as they could as the footsteps up the staircase grew louder. Pizarro, in his old age, was too frail to buckle his breastplate, but he drew a sword anyway. The intruders funneled through the doorway, and an awkward sword fight started in the dining room. Plates and forks flew off the table as both sides swung at the other. The attackers ran through Pizarro's brother with a spear. Pizarro himself killed two of the attackers with his sword and injured another, but there were too many of them. Soon, Francisco Pizarro found himself surrounded. A flurry of stabs came in from all sides. Pizarro crumpled into a pool of blood. He reached up towards the attackers, begging for them to allow a final confession of his sins. One of the attackers grabbed an ornate vase made of ink and gold and lifted it over Pizarro's head and said, Make your confession in hell, before slamming the vase down on Pizarro's head. The old Francisco Pizarro died then and there on the second floor of his massive mansion in a city he founded, in a country he conquered. 
News of Pizarro's assassination spread quickly, and soon the Spanish crown was sending another viceroy to replace him. Some of the assassins were immediately captured and killed, but others fled inland, eventually finding themselves at the mercy of the Sapa Inca of the Neo-Inca state. Mango Inca was initially skeptical, as most of his family had been slaughtered due to Spanish subterfuge, but eventually allowed these Spaniards to serve as his advisors. Perhaps more importantly, these renegade Spaniards from the anti-Pizarro faction instructed the Inca resistance fighters in the art of modern warfare. The Inca rebels had captured a sizable amount of muskets, armor, and horses, so these Spaniards taught them loading and firing techniques, trained blacksmiths, and bred horses. Soon, Inca rebels were showing up at the doorstep of Spanish colonies wielding firearms on horseback. Despite their greater success, the Inca resistance fighters were soon faced with full-scale Spanish armies, which sought to root them out with a vengeance. As they were losing territory, one of Pizarro's assassins decided it was time to take another bold move. While playing a game of horseshoes, several of Manco Inca's Spanish advisors stabbed the unsuspecting emperor to death. Another betrayal added to the long list of Spanish deceptions. After Manco Inca died, he was eventually replaced with Tupac Amaru, who led the Inca resistance that lasted for decades. However, his armies were eventually routed, and he found himself on the run once more. He and a small contingent of guards fled into the Amazon basin with the Spanish in hot pursuit. Slowed by his pregnant wife, Tupac Amaru was finally captured and executed by the Spanish in 1572. He was the final Sapa Inca, and the royal bloodline died off with him. His relatives were tortured, then executed. Catholic priests begged the Viceroy of Peru to not execute the children as well. He relented and allowed them to be exiled to Mexico and the Caribbean. From then on, there was no large-scale organized resistance to the Spaniards, who switched their tactics from conquest to colonization. Most of the conquistadors in Pizarro's expedition retired from conquest and spent the rest of their lives getting fat on beautiful estates, all while being served by legions of Incan and African slaves. But that life was not for Hernando de Soto, the chess companion to the late Atahualpa. Instead, he led dozens more expeditions into uncharted territory in the New World. His final expedition was a massive undertaking involving hundreds of Spaniards seeking gold from the indigenous tribes of what is now the United States. The mission is generally viewed as a total failure. De Soto himself died of disease after failing to convince the local tribes that he was a deity descended from the sun, a fake backstory he had surely stolen from his old friend Atahualpa. In the end, the fate of the Inca Empire all came down to the decisions of two men, one an illiterate bastard conquistador, the other an imperial god-king. Two men thinking they had outsmarted the other with an ambush, entire worlds resting on the outcome of their maneuvers. But in the end, it was Pizarro's king still standing on the chessboard. After the slaughter in Cayamarca Square, Francisco Pizarro continued on one of the most improbable military campaigns in all of human history, slaughtering countless Inca on his way to riches beyond compare. It's easy to look at the conclusion of the Inca Empire and feel nothing but despair for the native population of Peru caught in multiple crossfires and facing cataclysm after cataclysm. And many do. 
Some Incas, as they were punished for worshipping the sun, or refusing to learn Spanish, or forced to work mercury-poisoned silver mines, began to refer to themselves and their people as the dead ones. In turn, they called the white colonizers the live ones. Those who remembered the days of the Inca believed they had fallen out of favor with Inti, that their time in the sun was over. Today, megacorporations continue in the long tradition of resource extraction in South America, in countries like Ecuador, Colombia, Bolivia, and Peru, that were all once part of the Inca Empire. After they conclude extracting materials from a certain location, they move on to other areas, leaving oil spills, deforestation, human rights abuses, and toxic waste in their wake. These companies' goals are no different than the goals of Pizarro's Company of the Levant he formed back in 1524. Pizarro and his company were not state-sponsored, not at first. They were simply seeking profit with the state's approval in foreign lands. The same way that multinational corporations, backed by Western powers, are still seeking profit in South America to this day. And still, warriors for indigenous rights rise to the occasion. The survivors of the collapse of the Inca Empire do not have a culture of pessimism. It is one of hope, of their culture somehow surviving despite impossible odds. In their protests, you can see a certain flag among the crowd, a checkerboard of every color of the rainbow. This flag is traditionally associated with the Inca and represents the Quechua culture. These champions of indigenous rights, of human rights, wave the flag in opposition to those that wish them gone. They may be fighting against CIA-backed coups and Western corporations, but really, they're still fighting back against Francisco Pizarro, seeking to undo a checkmate in the square of Cayamarca from all those years ago. Historium is written and produced by me, Jake Barton, with story editing by Thomas Harlander. This episode was by far the hardest I have ever produced. The complexity of the story coupled with unforeseen outside circumstances slowed production to a snail's pace. But going forward, I am getting out of the audiobook industry and getting back to standard issue podcasts that are not exceptionally long. So, going forward, expect a return to our regularly scheduled programming. With an episode this huge, there's an abundance of facts that didn't make the episode. Here's just a few. During Pizarro's expedition, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V grew frustrated at how difficult it was for his forces and supplies to cross Central America from the Atlantic side to the Pacific side. He proposed building a canal. His dream was realized with the Panama Canal nearly 400 years later. Another fact that didn't make the episode, much of the gold and silver allotted to the Spanish crown was used to build a massive navy consisting of hundreds of state-of-the-art vessels. This Spanish armada, the product of so much looted South American gold, was decimated off the coast of England by the combined effects of a storm and British resistance. Last fact, the rapper Tupac Shakur was named after the final Sapa Inca Tupac Amaru. When asked about his name in an interview, Tupac's mom said this, quote, I wanted him to have the name of the revolutionary indigenous people of the world. I wanted him to know that he was part of a world culture, 
and not just from a neighborhood. Unquote. Some news here at the end. Uh, Historium is no longer a part of the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This is not because of any disagreements or bad blood or anything like that. It's simply because the Orbital Jigsaw Network no longer exists. I won't bore you with the details, but I would like to thank Nick Howell and the rest of the Orbital Jigsaw shows for being absolutely incredible and a great place to call home for all those years. So from here on out, Historium is going back to being independent. You as a listener should not notice any changes at all. All the differences will be back in stuff that only I'll have to worry about. If you want more episodes of Historium, check out my Patreon. There you can get monthly bonus episodes and gain access to my entire backlog of bonus content. The most recent bonus episode is me telling story editor Thomas about one of my favorite ancient Greek philosophers, Diogenes the Cynic. Just five bucks on Patreon, and that can be yours. Historian will be back in just a few weeks. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>